All right, let's get this thing going. The 2022-2023 NBA season is underway, and the reason I know that is because Charles Barkley is on TV talking about how joyless Russell Westbrook is, and the Golden State Warriors are, you know, walloping the Los Angeles Lakers. So that's as good a sign as any that it's time for Ken Clayton and I to talk about uh, the season preview and and uh, get this Utah Jazz season cooking here at saltcityhoops.com. So thanks for joining us for a Salt City Hoops podcast. I'm Dan Clayton, the managing editor of Salt City Hoops, uh, the guy over there on the other end of this internetic connection is Ken Clayton, uh, one of the columnists at Salt City Hoops. Ken, welcome in. Are you uh, are you ready for 1,200, well, I guess technically 1,228 more games once this Laker-Warrior game goes final in the next few minutes? Yeah, 1,228.3, let's say right now. But yeah, we're getting, uh, we're, we did get it started tonight, so. And it's strange that you and I both know what the number is of games in the NBA. It's not really all that strange. Okay. But uh, good point. But yeah, and 82 of those will involve a team that resembles the Utah Jazz, at least resembles in (sighs) arena and, um, you know, some other factors. Physically, they won't look that much like the Jazz, except for 17 nights where they'll wear the color purple because purple is back for 17 games out of 82. Um, not all of the players will resemble Utah Jazz players. The <laughs> coach won't resemble Utah Jazz coach, et cetera, et cetera, um, which is exactly why it's a fun time to sort of uh, zoom out and just talk about what we expect, which is what we're going to do. And and Ken has some uh, some burning questions, some of which some of which our other Salt City Hoops colleagues have taken a stab at in a, in a recent group post, but we're still gonna we're we're gonna double dip here because you know frankly, we know that you all are wondering how Ken and I thought about those same issues as well. So we'll uh, we'll answer some questions, but before that, some transactional news to break down. Um, it's funny, I Ken, I had like I had this whole concept for a piece and you know have been looking for time to hurry and and squeeze that out and then i woke up this morning to like actual news actual jazz news in the form of justin zanuck's extension and it feels like we better start there um you know i i i personally am of the opinion that this is um great news partially because i i think zanuck is smart i think he's well respected i think he's done uh uh a solid job, you know, first helping to build a contender and then taking over, you know, three years ago to really become the the primary decision maker, um, primary negotiator, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I also just think, you know, the thing that, that, that we're missing a little bit in the discussion around the Zanuck extension today is just how important it is to have like some small grain of continuity on a team that just completely looks at, I mean, the coach is months into his job. Danny Ainge is less than a year into his job. Ryan, uh, Ryan Smith. I almost said Ryan Reynolds cause free guy was on my TV earlier. Ryan Smith is, you know, what, two years into, um, less than two years into being the jazz owner. The, the longest tenured jazz player is Mike Conley and who knows how much longer he's going to be around. The second longest tenured player is Jordan Clarkson. They were both added to the team. In, in in 2019, uh, Conley in the summer, Clarkson just before Christmas. If those two are traded, you you have players who have been here for two years. I mean, it just there's so much turnover, and I don't think it's a bad thing to just make sure that you're preserving some little modicum of institutional memory and some idea of you know who this franchise is and what they're trying to accomplish on and off a basketball court. Right. I mean, then you stopped there. I don't want to get off the Justin Zanuck topic, but you stopped there. But it made me laugh that the next highest tenured jazz player, if you go by time since he was acquired, not number of games, is oh. Yudoka Azabuki. Uh-huh. Yeah. Two years. Yeah. Two years, but of course, number of games, he'd be eclipsed by Rudy Gay, who would be who was... would be fourth by time and and or or third by number of games. And fifth, I'm doing this. I'm doing this off the cuff. Fifth by time would be Nikhil Alexander Walker, right? Who was a deadline acquisition, yeah, a few months ago. I mean, and, that's just and, why. Like, and five is that. That's the list. 
Yeah. Yeah. Everyone yeah. else. Uh, you know, so it's, it is just, it, it's wild to think about. Um, you know, I also think, you know, in fairness to Justin, um, when, when he took over as the main guy in 2019, he took over a team that like, you know, a lot of the decisions had been made for him. The, the jazz were assets strapped at that point. They didn't have a whole lot of flexibility, a whole lot of ways for Justin to sort of make it his roster. He's tried some things. We can, we can talk about that. Obviously some moves have not worked out the way everybody hoped. I don't know how much of that we lay at Justin's feet versus other people's, but, um, but, you know, I, I think what's cool about this, too, is now he gets the opportunity to actually build something of his design instead of taking over a project from Dennis, where the the mole, you know, the die was a little bit cast just because of the asset position they were in after doing all those 2019 moves to acquire Bogey and Conley and, you know, all of that stuff. So, you know, I, it, it'll be interesting. I think, you know, we still we still haven't seen Justin Zanuck sort of fully unleashed and, and maybe we will now that it's, you know, a little bit more of his canvas to paint on. Obviously, you know, Danny Ainge is in the picture, too. Yeah, um, it, it will be very interesting. And, and as you just mentioned, um, we've, we've seen him for a little while. We know he's got that history. But yeah, how long how much we think he's been the primary negotiator. We think he's been the, the certainly the primary, you know, guy making the phone calls over the last few years. But now, uh, and, and the other thing I was going to point out too, is we also see when he gets this extension, I don't know exactly what, how many years he had left on his contract, but just like Will Hardy started out with this safety net of a five-year contract. So he doesn't have to prioritize. I got to get this thing winning or I'm going to lose my job. Now we have Justin Zanuck getting that same thing. So I don't know if he went from one year left to five years left, or uh, we don't know the numbers because I'm sure a uh, number of years were not disclosed. If they were, you can correct me, but he, what, however long that extension is, it now gives him the comfort to not have to change up the plan and go chasing wins, which clearly yeah. he hasn't been this summer. So. No, I, I agree. I, I think that that's a, a huge component here um, and, and why it's symbolic, but also more than symbolic that they made this decision on the eve of the jazz starting this, this very, you know, interstitial season that, it, mm -hmm. it, you know, like it, it says loudly and clearly that, you know, that, that the jazz are thinking about the, the longer term as opposed to like, okay, you know, go out and produce this year. They, they could have announced this extension a month ago. They could have announced it a month from now, but doing it literally on, day minus one of the season, I think is a, is a clever way of sending the message that like, Hey, we're not sweating the standings this year. That's not what this season is about. And it, it's a good, it's a good reminder. And I'm sure that'll come into play on, on some of our questions. Um, I don't know. I, I like, I don't know how much I want <clears throat> to necessarily even engage on like the, the, the criticisms around, this extension decision or the criticism. I, I mean, like, look, it's, it's fair to say, and I think, you know, Zanuck could dial into this podcast and, and even he would probably say that like, there have been some misses around the, around the margins yeah. as the jazz tried to take a, you know, uh, how, however you view them, right. I view that I view, I think the jazz of the last three years have been capital C contenders and they were looking to sort of further ensconce themselves in that discussion. Other people think differently. Maybe you think they were a lowercase c contender and and hoping to, you know, become a, a real legit title threat. How, however you view them, the reality is that, you know, had the Rudy Gay signing worked out better, may, maybe that era has a different ending. If, if, you know, the 2020 draft goes differently, maybe that story has it yeah we could go into that and and i'm not even like those are real those are real things that the jazz acknowledge that the jazz know that they had some opportunities to to strengthen you know whatever seven through i guess really eight through 15 on their roster and and those moves didn't work out <clears throat> i also feel pretty strongly that that's not why that iteration of the jazz didn't make it um 
in other words, I believe simultaneously, and this is sometimes hard for people to grasp in like 280 character conversations, but like, I believe simultaneously that say, you know, for example, drafting Desmond Bain over Doak would have helped the jazz. And also that the team with the mental, whatever that was happening last season, even if they had Bain, I don't know that that makes the big difference. Like, like the reasons they fell apart were not roster based reasons. They, they fell apart for frankly dumb reasons. And, you know, it's a bummer, but, but that's why I don't necessarily feel like super compelled to go back and rehash every decision in the Justin Zanuck era or the, or even the Lindsay Zanuck era. Right. Um, but, I, but I don't know. Do you feel differently? Like, am I, am I being too easy on Justin for some of those misses? Uh, not, not as much on Justin. Maybe I just, the one thing that popped in my head when you said it wasn't as much roster based, I think the one exception, the, the one that popped in my head anyhow was starting a Conley Mitchell O'Neill threesome just always left the jazz very short. Um, and without the length, I think that was a big part of their problem, yeah, certainly against the Clippers, certainly against the Mavs. And that's just talking about the playoff series. Um, but it, I mean, that, those, those decisions hurt me now, again, I'm not saying that's on Zanuck because I don't know who was making the, the decisions at right at those junctures when they acquired those, those players. And there was a guy who could have said, well, I'm not going to start all three of those players. I'm going to start somebody with a little more length. I don't know that Royce O'Neal would have liked that. Um, or Mike Conley, he probably wasn't going to move Donovan Mitchell out of the starting lineup, but so there was a little bit of roster. There were some roster limitations in addition to what we're talking about with the, with what you said, with the stupid stuff that also contributed to preventing the jazz from realizing what we all, or we, many of us thought was their true potential or, or, you know, true potential sounds very vague. I'm, I don't know if that means championship, but certainly closer to it than they got in the last three years. Yeah. Yeah. I will. I just, I will go to my grave believing that group was, was good enough. Um, which, which, you know, whatever that may make me sound like an apologist. I actually think that's more damning than the other thing for, you know, for me to sit here and say like they could have done it and they sort yeah. of decided not to, is actually like kind of a, frankly, kind of a shittier version of the, of the analysis. But, um, but that's just, that's just where I am, you know, obviously like, you know, when they, when they picked up Rudy Gay last year at the taxpayer MLE, um, I liked that signing. I, even before they signed him, I did a little analysis on like, Hey, you add that's six, seven, six, eight, six, nine, uh, you know, a plus defender historically can hit catch and shoots, et cetera, et cetera. And like, you know, there are five guys in the NBA who meet all those descriptors who aren't all-stars. And one of them was Rudy Gay. So I liked the deal. You know, I was, I was getting in, you know, politely, but, but debating with some jazz fans today and, you know, pointed out that like Dan Feldman liked the deal. You know, a lot of people liked the deal. A lot of people felt like the jazz had addressed their holes. People felt the same way when they added Ed Davis and Jeff Green on the cheap, mm -hmm. and those didn't work out either. So, you know, it's it's easy to say in hindsight, like, oh man, if they'd done something other than Rudy Gay, if they'd done something other than Ed Davis, but you know, if you did a touchdown dance when they when they made those signings, it's it rings a little hollow to to um, you know light the light the torches over that specifically. Um, I also, and this is my last point here, but you feel free to react to this or add anything to it. Um, I, I also feel like because last year was so weird and so bad and the team was so off the rails from a chemistry standpoint and a, and a mental standpoint and a focus standpoint and a belief standpoint and whatever other kind of standpoint, like that makes it hard for me to announce to, to really analyze any particular player's performance in a vacuum. Cause I like, it's hard to know would, would Rudy Gay have helped a team that wasn't already so broken and damaged? Like we don't, we don't get to know that. You know what I mean? So I, like, I don't, it's, it's just hard to, and it's hard on everyone, right? Like it's hard to figure out like, 
you know, Royce O'Neal struggled down the stretch of the season and into the playoffs. Like how much of that is, it's just, it's just hard to know how much of it was the team as a whole was so broken that, you know, was Mike Conley's playoffs sign of an inexorable decline in his skills or was it just that everybody was so checked out that that basketball didn't matter and didn't count and, and, you know, wasn't really representative of anything. And I, and I say that rhetorically, I don't know the answer. I just, it's, it's something yeah. I wonder about when we talk about the gays and the Ingles and, and all the guys who had up and down seasons. Yeah. And the, and, and, you know, you mentioned the thing about Rudy Gay, we still don't get to know that because how he plays this coming year, he's a year older. He's with a bunch of different guys, not as much talent around him. So even if he, still doesn't play well this year you can't know what last year might have been if you know the butterfly butterfly had flapped its wings differently my last Mm -hmm. comment on the zanic thing was just you know when i saw it and i saw some people you know doing what we said we weren't going to do nitpicking moves along the way my thought is it's a sign that he went out and did what the team wanted him to do this summer the guy who knows how many trades he negotiated. He executed five. Mm-hmm. He had that phone attached to his ear for probably the entire off season. And that's just counting the dealing with, with the Knicks. Um, I don't know how he had time <laughs> to talk to anybody else because that whole process was seven weeks of futility. So, you know, yeah. clearly he did what, what he and the other members of the brain trust asked of him and he today got the got the reward for that and that reward probably involves a whole lot more phone in the year for the next two to three years while you keep moving pieces moving assets and building into something bigger faster stronger like the six million dollar man yeah yeah no look at the end of the day i i believe pretty firmly that I, I don't have contacts inside 29 front offices, but I, I'm guessing that pretty close to 29 other teams would gladly bring Justin Zanuck into their front office in some capacity if they had the chance. He's just, he's that well respected. He's that well thought of. Um, he's been an agent. He's been an executive now for eight years, nine years. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think, I think it's a no brainer, you know, good decision. Um, Obviously, he'll, you know, from here forward, he'll be evaluated on the deals he makes now with that blank canvas we talked about. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's a great message to send that, that hey, it's you, you've got, like Will Hardy, you've got the runway, go make this yours and, and we'll evaluate that along the way. And, and, you know, I'm sure they'll make decisions as they go. So um, with that, let's, let's you and I move forward as well, because we also wanted to spend some time talking about the season ahead. Um, you shared with me a couple of questions that you wanted to broach. Um, and again, there are things that other Salt City Hoops writers have taken a stab at, but you know, that no harm, no foul. We can weigh in on those too. So let me just, the, the balance of the podcast, Ken, is yours. What do you want to talk about? What, what should we, I think you have five or six questions jotted down to kind of guide our conversation here as we imagine the 2022-2023 Utah Jazz here on the eve of their season. Okay. And I'll start out with my apologies who those who, to those who did the uh, responded to the group post because I quite honestly, when I pitched some of these questions, I had not yet read it. Um, I've been traveling for a few days and just hadn't gotten around to it and didn't realize I was duplicating those questions. So those who answered it, don't take it personally. I did read it after the fact, <laughs> but we are still using a few of those questions. You didn't even have to confess that, but but, but well, you were traveling. So, yeah. you know, that, that's yeah. your that's a good excuse. So Clark, yeah. Tyler, Zarin, Mark, David, um, great work. We're going to try to compliment that on a couple of these questions now. Yeah. So. Again, I came up with some of these questions before without realizing they're already out there. So my first one that I that popped in my head is today, the start of the season, or the, the eve of the start of the Jazz season, who is the best player on the team? I'm going to throw that to you first, and then I'll chime in with my answers or my my thoughts. Well, you know, in a, in a normal year, I would answer that in terms of who has the most impact on winning. That's why I've been kind of a, a very pro Gobert 
um, mm-hmm. analyst during during Gobert's tenure. Um, and if I were following that convention, I would probably say Mike Conley. I think Mike is the person who who has the ability to impact the Jazz being organized and and vaguely good more than anyone else. But I, but I feel like that's probably not the right way to analyze this group because I don't think winning is necessarily the goal. And, you know, again, we can debate how, like, I don't, you know, are they going to capital T tank or are they just going to mess around and see what happens? I don't know. But, but certainly they're not as win-focused as they were last year. So I think I would evaluate best player a little differently. And and I'm going to agree with the fellas here, or, or at least kind of the consensus. I think Markkanen probably is in the best position to, to have the best year on an individual basis. Um, you, you know, just to, to do more than he's done the last couple of years, um, to be featured more. Um, I think he's going to play a lot of minutes. I think he's going to play, you know, a couple different spots on the floor. Um, I think he's going to be a screener. I think he's going to be a ball handler. He's going to be a spot up shooter. I think he's going to do a lot of things and, um, you know, hopefully he'll also get a little better on defense, but you know, again, that's something that, that's something that you say when you're, you know, hoping for 40 plus wins and I'm not sure they are. So, I, I would short answer. I would say I would say Markinen, um is probably the guy that in April we're we're sitting on this podcast saying he had the best season. Okay, so you kind of unwittingly or wittingly answered my second question as well as my first question. In fact, maybe you answered my second question that I haven't asked yet more than you answered my first question. So I'll go through my through my thought process. Best player on the team today, I do feel like is probably Mike Conley. Um, I know I same, same caveats you gave. I mean, I'm not sure it's about winning just because winning isn't the priority right now, but I think just as far as going out there and organizing the team and the team, the team just plays so much more cohesively. If you go back and watch that San Antonio game, uh, where they played so poorly when he wasn't dressed, um, just he, he has a way, even if it doesn't lead to wins because of the rest of the talent around him of, I think bringing up the level, maybe he brings up the floor, but not the ceiling as much. But my, my second question was, who oh, yeah, will be the right. best player by the end of the year? And that was, and my answer for that was Larry Markkinen. So I think we're very much on the same page there. I do think he's a guy who has probably the highest ceiling within this season of basketball, not forever, but Within this season of basketball, he's a guy I look at and think. I mean, he's he's basically played the best in the preseason. He clearly played played very well in Eurobasket, and so if that kind of momentum continues forward, I think we'll probably look back in April and say, of the guys who are still on the team, he's the best one there, assuming he is there. But I but I my assumption will be that he he will be come April. Yeah, I think so too. And sorry, you're you're right. Those were two of the questions you sent me beforehand, and yet I still um, botched it and answered two and one. But I guess okay. I guess we just made the podcast a little shorter for people. There, yeah, that'll be the first time we ever made a shorter podcast. <laughs> and by shorter, I mean it'll be like an hour and twenty minutes instead of an hour and twenty six. I was going to say fifty five instead of an hour and ten, but yeah, I don't know if I should promise uh, promise anything that short. So. We'll see how it goes. We have four questions left. Bring it on. Yeah. Okay. So this question is really almost exclusively for you, and you have not seen this question yet. And the reason is uh, I was traveling during the first pre- two preseason games. I don't remember what my excuse is for the game against San Antonio. I did watch, for the most part in its entirety, the most recent game. Um, but I have not watched enough to really get a feel for things. So we've heard a lot about Will Hardy and he's, he's, uh, I don't know what all the right words are that I'm trying to express here, but that he's a great guy and he's a great leader and whatever. But as far as on the court, what is your early perception of what his coaching style, what his offense, what his defense are going to bring on the floor as much as you can divine that from <laughs> what 192 minutes of preseason basketball 
Um, yeah, it's it's a good question. At, at some point, I I threaded some thoughts, and so now I'm trying to remember what was in that thread. I think my number one observation on um, on defense um, is I think the Jazz are going to jump passing lanes a little bit more. Quinn Snyder was famously a little bit conservative, and I think that you know from a risk reward standpoint, that was probably the right move to be conservative and to sort of play on your heels and just you know try to stay in front and funnel guys because. You know, if if your core defense is really flipping good, there's not as much reason to need to gamble all the time. If you're planning on being a bottom 10 defense and I bet the Jazz are going to be a bottom 10 defense, Uh then, you know, you what what do you have to lose by jumping out at high passes? And and particularly the part that has surprised me the most is even seeing the bigs who, you know, are out on the floor a little bit more because maybe they're guarding a screening action from the elbow or something. But even like the Olenix and the Kessler Walkers and the Lowry Markinens and and those guys are, you know, lunging at passes 20 feet from the basket, which, you know, my I had a coach say, like, if you he his background was a little different. He was a he was a hockey guy originally. So he just sort of felt differently about team defense and team offense and team everything but his thing was um he he told us playing for a steal is selfish and if you go for the steal you damn well better get it because if you go for it and you don't get it then now we're guarding five on four and i do think that that's a little extreme in basketball because i just think there's a, a different risk reward calculation in basketball but i do think that there's something to be said for like if if you're if you're so if your confidence in your defense is lacking enough that you're telling Kelly Olenek, yeah, go ahead and lunge at the three-point line to try to get a steal. It it means that you know that you that your that that your core defense is is probably not going to win you a lot of games. So that that's just one thing I noticed. Um offensively, you know, people have people have talked a lot about the rebound and go thing. I kind of think that's going to settle down when the real games start. I feel like that's uh-huh. another one of those things that like um you know it's just one of those preseason themes that everyone talks about and then eventually the focus on that wanes um obviously they're not passing the ball you know as as much as a team without a marquee talent needs to um if they want to be competitive but again but again you know <laughs> maybe, maybe that's just not in the cards so yeah. so i don't know i like i think a lot of the sets look um, look similar. I think there's a little bit less fluff in Will Hardy's offense than there was in, in Quinn's, especially the early Quinn Snyder era when, you know, the jazz would do like four actions that were designed to yield absolutely nothing just because, you know, by the time they were ready to run the actual play, they wanted the defense to be a little bit off guard and whatever. And I'm seeing less of that from Hardy. I, I think, you know, when, when they call a play, it's, it's to, you know, get something out of that action. So I don't know. That was a little all over the place, but no, that's fine. Th- those are some of my impressions. Okay. No, that's uh, hopefully helpful for listeners. It, helpful for me, because like I mentioned, I really watched probably about 50 some odd minutes of basketball. Uh, it was just not the best preseason schedule for me. Yeah. Yeah. They are going to be, they're going to be bad at defending the paint. They might not be bad at everything. Like, yeah. I, like, I think they have enough talent to, like, you know, accidentally win 32 games and be like, oh, crap, now we have the ninth, wor- you know, the ninth best lottery odds instead of the fourth. Like, they, you know, unless they, whatever. There are a lot of ways they could engineer that, too. But my point is, like, the one area where I just don't think they have a choice, they are going to be abysmally bad, is protecting the rim. They just, yeah, they just don't have any resistance there. Right. I, Totally agree. As you were flying through your list of players there, you uh, did something that I've been careful not to do myself so far, but I'll probably make this mistake at some point during the season. Um, Because to me, Kessler is a first name. I know. And Walker is a last name. Uh, Obviously, yeah, we actually have a cousin named Kessler that the listeners don't know about. But yeah, Kessler to me is a first name. Walker to me is a last name. And you were flying through that and you said, Kessler Walker. 
but uh, yeah. and then there's and then there's Kessler Edwards who's on the net oh, yeah, or yeah, was, yeah. you know was on it so it's just yeah I I need to that's one of those I need to fix in my brain the whole uh, the whole Walker Tech Utah Ranger nickname was supposed to help me sort that out mentally yeah because it starts with Walker but yeah I don't always think about that when I'm going rapid fire so yeah thanks, no, thanks for calling me on the carpet yeah. <laughs> no I've made the mistake just internally in my head before and corrected myself um so it was funny to it was funny to hear it actually verbalized and especially because it didn't come out of my mouth. <laughs> I one more one more interruption. I, I just a tweet just came across from the account at Legion Hoops. Report the Lakers had the opportunity to trade their 2027 and 2029 first round picks to the Jazz in exchange for Boyan Bogdanovich, Mike Conley, Rudy Gay, and a 2023 first round pick via T Jones on the NBA, Tony Jones of the athletic. We knew all this. We've, this has been mulled around in jazz Twitter quite a bit, but the image they have below that as the Lakers are getting blown out in, in uh, San Francisco is LeBron with his hands up. Like (laughs) what, what happened? What's going on? So, no, I'll tell you, Charles Barkley did Justin Zanuck a favor tonight. He, he went pretty heavy on the halftime show, which I rarely even watch, but I was, I was writing and editing some stuff for the site and um, had it on in the background. And um, yeah, if, if the jazz wanted some help putting pressure on the Lakers, the warriors did most of that, but you know, certainly the narrative around the the night they had. Yeah. There's a lot of angsty people in Tinseltown tonight. Sure. My only, my only, and again, we're getting off, off topic, which that's never happened before. Off topic but, is allowed. We saved yeah. like six minutes before on the yeah. other thing. So. Uh-huh. It, my only concern is that, that if the Lakers ever decide, okay, we're willing to part with the two picks, that they probably go to Indiana first. Um, and I don't even yeah. necessarily think that's their, their best deal. Well, it might be now because Bogdanovich is gone. But, but, I, but, but earlier, I didn't necessarily think that was their best deal, but I think they think that's their best deal. So, yeah, and it and it and it might be just because, like, you know, the, both those guys are kind of exactly what the Lakers yeah. need. I think the I think the bogey deal was always like bogey and some other stuff that would be nice and would make you better. But, but you know, um, I still think that the best chance of that deal happening now is that there's a, a Mike Conley team out there somewhere. Yeah. Um that has an expiring salary they'd they'd send to LA. Cause I, I, I've just, I've heard over and over that the, that the guaranteed money on, on Mike's deal next year, you know, it, sure. it he's going to cost, you know, either 22 million to employ him or 14.5 million to not employ him. And either way, that's going to, that's going to hamper the, the Lakers plans for next season. So, right. Um, and I, and I, and I don't, I honestly don't know who the Mike Conley teams are. I've guessed in a recent column who some might be um, watching the watching the Sixers tonight reminded me that they're a team, even though they haven't been rumored to have any interest in Mike. I, I believe they should like just because all of their nominal point guards aren't real point guards. I think Mike Conley could help them a lot, um, but it would be really hard to make a deal work there because neither the jazz nor the Lakers want Tobias Harris's contract. So it would mm-hmm. be like a, it would be a poo-poo platter of like Melton and Corkmaz and you know someone else, and um, you know that's always tough too because then the receiving team has to wave a bunch of guys. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. Okay. It'll be it'll be interesting to watch the the Lakers thing though, and and uh, both in a vacuum and as it relates to the Jazz. All right, back to the questions. That was halftime. Half your halftime entertainment was talking about the trade and. Uh or the, you know, the potential, a potential Lakers trade and, and, and Kessler Walker, Walker, Walker Kessler's last name, first name. You couldn't get uh, red Panda for halftime. But <laughs> No, they already booked. All right. All right. Who to you is your, the most exciting prospect? And I'm defining that as let's say on their rookie contract or the equivalent. So maybe in their first three or four years, uh, so most exciting prospect on the, on the Utah jazz. And I can tell you who those guys are if you want, but I've you got probably it know who so, they are. Yeah. Okay. So it would be, it would be Ochai, Simone, Walker Kessler are the rookies. Um, 
Leandro Balmaro entering his second season, Doak entering yep. his third, and that's pretty much it, unless we're counting the the two way guys. Uh, you you isn't Talon Horton Tucker entering his fourth? So you entering can count his fourth. Him. You can well, count you said him if for you want. three years. Oh, well, said, he's not all that. Okay. He's he's not all that intriguing to me anyway. Nikhil okay. Alexander Walker is also entering his fourth, but boom, shots fired at THT. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, just in the sense that, like, I think when they got him, they got him because, like, if you're just going to have a generic dude on the end of your bench, you'd rather him be 21 than 34. Yeah. You know, so, and, and that's not to say that he won't be given opportunities, but I just, I think, I don't know. My, I, I've never been, like, super excited about the THT experience, other, but, he, I mean, you know, he's going to play. He can do some things, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I think my answer... Well, well, number one, my answer is a little different today than it would have been two weeks ago. And that's a huge credit to the guy whose first name is Walker and last name is Kessler because wait, I didn't like check that. Okay. Yeah. No, yes, I, I look, right. I look, yeah, okay. um, yeah. So, you know, going into the preseason, I would have had the rookies ranked in my, in my personal level of excitement pretty firmly with Ochai first, Simone second big gap to Walker Kessler. That's how I would have thought about it before the preseason. Um, Ochai and Simone are having a hard time, you know, getting on the court. That's not unusual for rookies. I'm not worried about it. I I think that they'll, you know, they'll have time. They'll have opportunities. They'll earn their way to minutes, all those things. Um, But just seeing how ready and how, um, and how heady, I didn't mean to rhyme when I started that sentence, but there you go. Like, Walker Kessler just looks like he knows what to do on a basketball court. And that's a bigger deal for a rookie playing at NBA speeds for the first time than I think some folks realize. So, um, so I'm more excited about him today. I I still do think that like as a long-term prospect, you know, Ochai, like Ochai at his ceiling probably gives the jazz more to work with than Walker Kessler at his ceiling. But, you know, you know, you never know how close to a ceiling you're going to get with a guy. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I would, I guess, I guess I want to still say Abaji is my most intriguing young dude on this team currently. Um, but Walker Kessler's making it a little hard to ignore the fact that he looks competent and looks like he could, you know, help an NBA team right away. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I, I, had probably higher hopes like you did for Agbaji before, but I think Kessler definitely stands out at this point as as the most exciting today on recording this on October 18th, late in the evening. Um, we'll see if you know we'll see if that changes as different guys get playing time as as trades happen, as as you know roles change on the team with or without trades. Uh, that sort of thing. But yeah, for now, just based on the preseason. In fact, I saw a lot of, I, I wasn't planning to talk about this, but I saw a lot of kind of chatter about how Agbaji should be playing and certain guys, veterans, should not be playing. And I just, my my perception on that, and you can add to this if you'd like, is I feel like part of the culture that is being reestablished, and yes, I said reestablished because I don't think it, a hundred percent existed last year um is this the idea that the best guys are going to play it's not even though yeah yeah even though you're talking even though you're in a rebuilding period and you're developing one of the things i think you and i have almost always agreed on but not everybody is on the same page with us is development doesn't just happen in games development happens in practice and once you get to the point that you are earning some minutes and taking them away from another guy, that's when you get to go develop and get and take the next step and and do it against opponents instead of teammates in practice. Well, so so you're getting into my next column, which, oh. um, but but uh, you know that's fine. I'll I'll I go. I should there. have said spoiler alert. I did, I, did, I, I know. know I know. See, you're spoiling recently written. You're spoiling soon to be written. <laughs> it's yeah. Um, no, I so not only do I fully fully agree with that. Um, I also think, well, two, two things I'd add to that. Number one is you're also talking about a rookie head coach who's got, 
mm-hmm. you know, zero brand built up, zero name recognition, zero anything. And he's got to establish credibility with players. And how do you establish credibility with players? If you, if you go into camp and you tell guys, okay, here's what I need. Here's our system. Here's how we want to execute. Here's what I need to see from each of you in order to play you. And then you go out to the court and you play some dude who's not giving you those things anyway, just because his, you know, the year on his birth certificate is a higher four digit integer. Like, Uh I, I don't think you can. If you're if you're trying to, as you said, reestablish the culture, but also just like win guys over and tell people, you know, show people that you're for real um, and that the principles you're preaching matter. You have to be a little bit consistent about like, you know, what are the benchmarks that lead to minutes? The other thing I'd say, and and this is, you know, I I personally think and I'm going to be writing about this. um, I, I personally think that the most the single most misunderstood thing by fans about development is the relationship between minutes and development. In fact, I think that I think that fans believe that playing time develops players. And I think it's the exact opposite. I think development leads you to playing time, not the other way around. Um, I think one thing that the jazz learned in the last rebuild is just how harmful it can be to reward a guy with minutes who has not yet, hit the bench you know like imagine i don't know if this alternate reality exists but like imagine if in order to get minutes ennis Cantor had to play defense like imagine how differently his career trajectory could have been like would he have would he have learned defense or would he have just flamed out sooner like i don't know the answer to that question or you know imagine if trey burke instead of just being handed 32 minutes a game right when he walked in if if there were clearer so i you know i think that that is something that they have to balance too. I was listening to a a podcast, a a low post podcast, and he had Mark Spears on because they were talking about the Draymond thing. And, and um, you know, they were talking about how reporters used to watch, used to be in the pre blogging and live tweeting days. uh, Reporters used to be allowed to watch teams practice with certain conditions. And they were talking about it because of the, the Draymond punch. But where it relates to this discussion is Mark Spears at one point said, you know, it was amazing how much I got from being in the gym because now it's clear to me why a certain guy is or isn't playing. Like if if Ochai is not out playing Rudy Gay in practice, then how can Will Hardy put him on the court and still have a straight face the next time he tells his guys, you know, hey the path to minutes is X, Y, and Z. I, I just, I feel like people overlook that so much and just go, oh, well, if they're going to suck anyway, you might as well play the youngest guys possible because maybe they won't suck after they play some more. And I just don't think that's how development in the NBA works. No. Long and even, Sorry. Yeah. And, and even taking Rudy Gay out of that, because positionally we're talking about a different group. Will Hardy's going to have his hands full, in my opinion, this year with the foursome of Mike Conley, Colin Sexton, Jordan Clarkson, and Malik Beasley. And yeah. then we haven't even gotten to Ochai. We haven't even gotten to, uh, you know, Bull is probably not really pushing there. Uh, Butler clearly is out of the picture at this point. And THD is a guard. Nikhil Alexander-Walker. Those two, those two are both guard forward maybe um, yeah. because of length. But yeah, I mean, we haven't even gotten to those guys. And we got four guys who, if you just split the number, the, the minutes easily at those two positions, you really, you, everybody's like, Hey, everybody happy with 24 and, and nobody else plays. So there's, right. there's, you know, for a team that is top talent deficient, there's a lot of talent on this roster that is going to, you know, that wants to play some games and play some minutes. And there's not always going to be minutes to go around for, for even those guys. Yep. Totally agree. I, you know, a, a lot of coaches, this is not a jazz specific thing. I, I spent the whole Ty Corbin era telling fans this, like coaches will often err on the side of, I'm going to play the guy who, when I draw something on the clipboard in the huddle, he knows how to go out and execute what I drew up, which again is, is probably an underrated skill set. I, I think a lot of, a lot of very talented players just kind of go out and play. Uh, coaches will trust that over pure talent. Like, 
8.5 out of 10 times, I think, right? Uh Unless there's just a clear edict that like you are playing Jalen Green and you're going to live with the growing pains. You're playing, you know, whatever it is. Um, So, so I do, I do expect to see Hardy continue to, to play a little bit more veteran heavy, even though I, I still don't love it. I didn't love it when the preseason started. I, I don't love that. Like outside of, of Kessler, that was a last name reference, by the way, outside of Kessler, you know, they're, they're really not playing anybody in their main rotation that hasn't been an NBA rotation player before. And in a way that kind of bugs me because I'm intrigued by the, the unknowns and the possibilities, but like that's probably how it's going to be until someone forces Will Hardy's hand. And honestly, in an, in the meritocracy of an NBA environment, that should be how it works. Like you should play once you've made it clear that you should play. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. and the other thing that's going to happen, and this is the segue into the next question is eventually some minutes are going to free up with those guys because eventually between now and February 9th, some of the veterans are going to be moved. I mean, I certainly would think so. And I think that's the plan. And that's probably part of the plan for having them out there, even though I'm sure the front office isn't telling Will Hardy who you have to play to showcase. I'm not really convinced showcasing works very often anyhow, but we, we expect long intro here. Some players will be traded. So, you knew this question was coming. It was in the ones I sent you earlier, make a prediction who will be the first player to be traded from the jazz. Um, that's a, I'm sorry. I'm only silent because it's kind of a 50, 50 proposition for me. Yeah. Well, you can pick two then I'm not, you know, there's no, um, we're, we're, we're not betting a hundred dollars on this one. So. Um, like, Again, if the if the Jazz want to ensure that they're going to be like twenty eight wins or below, the easiest way to do that is to find a home for Mike Conley. Yeah. Um, Mike Conley is also harder to move because, you know, a, a tax paying team has to do like at some point I, there's a point in the offseason where I knew this number to heart. It's something like eighteen. It's something like 18 million. Yeah, it's just above 18 million that a taxpaying team would have to send out to bring back Mike Conley. Um, for a team under the tax, it's about 17.7 million. So, you know, that's it's tough to find a Conley deal. They'd also have to be okay with what I said, where next year he's either going to make 24 million, 24 million and change to play basketball, or he's going to make um, 14.3 million to not play basketball. So, so he would be my instinctual pick, but because of the contract, you know, the contract reality, it might be Jordan Clarkson instead. Um, and, and particularly if, if this, not that all my eggs are in the Laker basket, but if this pressure continues to grow in and around Figueroa Avenue, where whatever the hell they call their arena is now, like, I, I do think I do think Clarkson is a more logical centerpiece to a Laker deal than Conley. Like I said, if Conley's involved in a Westbrook framework, I bet he winds up in, I don't know, Washington or New Orleans or or like I said, you know, I think Philly should be interested in him. I don't know if they are. Like that's that's I think the framework where where Conley's involved in a Westbrook deal is he goes somewhere else, the somewhere else team sends a small, you know, sends a, an expiring contract to LA in addition to Clarkson and Beasley or whoever LA wants. Um, so that, so that's my answer is I think, I think those two veterans are the most, are the most likely guys to be the centerpiece of the next jazz deal. Yeah. I would only lean, I, I agree, it's between those two, and that's probably fairly obvious to just about anybody who would uh, dial up our podcast. I'd put Clarkson just a little ahead because of the lower salary, the chance of getting out of salary next year if he doesn't pick up his player option, and just there's not as much of a perception that he at age 30 is as far down the road as Mike Conley is um, at age 35. 
So I think yeah. I think I'd, I'd put Clarkson ahead just if I was actually like making odds for this, I'd put Clarkson ahead. But yeah, I think the Jazz would probably be slightly more interested in moving Conley sooner because I think he might accidentally get you a few more wins, not even directly. Not I mean, he's not a guy, he's not going to go out and start in an average 27 points a game, but he's going to do all the other things that that organize the team and running the team and and helping the team do some of the right things that eventually impact winning, even if you don't see him on a stat sheet. If you take, oh darn it, I had this and then I scrolled the wrong way. And if you take Utah's players and you add up the the current roster, but you add up the total of their estimated wins added per EPM last season. Um, you you have you have players on this roster that EPM thinks were worth 33.7 wins last year. Now, was Mike's inflated because he played with Rudy? Was you know was Sexton's artificially low because of the injury? Yes, of course it was. Like all those things, right? But if you take Mike out of that total, it goes from 33.7 to 24.1. So, like I say, if you just if if you want to if you want to make sure that the Jazz have a hard ceiling on how good they can be because you want to maximize the odds of coming away from next June with a Wembanyama or a Scoot Henderson, I think you know the the easiest way to do that is is trading Mike Conley. But like you said, the more the more tradable contract is Jordan for sure. Right. That was me just loudly agreeing with you. By the way, I don't even know. Yeah. What well, I, but with math, who doesn't do, like? Yeah. Who, who doesn't like a mathy, you know, estimated plus or, or uh, yeah, EPM wins added reference on a podcast? Nobody's saying me. Nobody's saying they don't like that. So that's true. Okay, last question, and we just were talking about who impacts winning and which players might help the Jazz accidentally stumble into more wins this season. How many wins do you have for the Jazz? Um, you can answer that one of two ways, but specify how you're answering it or answer it both ways. How many wins do you think today's jazz team looks like they would get? And how many wins do you think the jazz actually end up winning? Well, I think the latter one is the one that matters. Sure, um, sure. I, I like, I think the on paper Utah jazz are probably a, a team that should or could win in the low thirties. I do think that the Jazz will end up um, below. Th- I-, I would say in the twenty-two to twenty-eight win range because they want to. Um, yeah. I I think that they have more trades they can make. They they have other ways they can engineer. I mean, I don't I don't know if I can share this or if I should share this, but at minute fifty of a podcast, I don't know who's listening still, so I'm just gonna take a risk <laughs> and say it. Um, before hey, the jazz 42 if they're on 1.25 speed so yeah that's i'm sure true. they're all that's i'm true. sure they're all still here um before the jazz traded donovan and, and it you know it was unclear like they had traded rudy they had traded royce it was it was clear they were going to be at least retooling and you know i was talking to some people about um you know if if you keep don is there any worry that you're going to be better than, you know, not good enough to be relevant, but not bad enough to be really rewarded. And, you know, in the course of those conversations, someone, someone mentioned to me basically like, you know, I, like someone can just go on vacation for a month. Like, you know, like there are a lot of ways to engineer your way from right. 31 wins to 27 wins. And, and that's if, and that's if you don't trade guys, right? And I think they're going to trade some guys. So I, I think they have a, a smaller gap if they want to make that kind of a, a backward move. So I, I, like, I get why the win math has some people worried and, and going like, oh, they're too good. They got it. Yeah, that's, that's when a team is motivated to go out and win. Like, the win math kind of doesn't matter when you have your coach writing DNP old next to players names on the on the injured reserve list sorry that was a that was a pop reference for people who didn't catch that deep cut but 
yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm just not that worried about the like are they too good thing. Um I I think yeah. I don't know. I'm not. I won't I won't keep repeating you're, the same point anymore. You're you're, you're not making sense anymore. Is that what you were trying to say? No, I'm just saying yeah, I'm, I'm just saying like uh, here's here's I guess what I would say. If the Jazz accidentally win 34 games because Mike Conley has a tremendous season, like that'll be a little disappointing. If they accidentally win 34 games because some of these guys were talking about like a Baji or Fontecchio or or Walker Kessler or you know because THT suddenly learns or or Colin Sexton or Laurie Markin and takes a major jump and suddenly the Jazz are in playing range. Like I won't be as disappointed in that because that's at least like a future focused version mm-hmm. of the Jazz that you're still trying to define a little bit. But frankly, I just I. I think when it comes down to it, like there's, there's, yeah, <laughs> again, I'm just saying that I'm just saying the same thing in different words, but they, they are not, I, I'm trying to avoid saying that they're going to try to lose. Cause I don't think the jazz will ever tell their players, okay, go out and don't try as hard on this possession. The, the players yeah. will be instructed to do their best. The players want to do their best because they're playing for their own future money and their families and their kids and their kids, kids and whatever. But, um, but, but even, you know, I, I just think that the jazz have enough motivation to engineer things that it, I, it will shock me if, you know, March comes and we're like, Oh my heck, the jazz are, you know, five games out of the play in. Should they just go for it? Yeah. Well, and they, the, the one thing that keeps being mentioned um, by Will Hardy don't know if anybody else has mentioned it specifically, but is that that Mike Conley will not be playing all the games. And to me, that just no, you know, nobody's given any parameters on that. But to me, that sounds like it goes maybe a little beyond just sitting out the second half of back to backs or something like that. Um, I, I wonder that's that's kind of one of the questions I'll be interested to see in this first 10 games is, you know, how many of those does Mike Conley play? Uh I'll probably do this wrong, but there are only eh, there are two back to backs, two sets of back to backs in the first ten games. So I'd probably put the cap at eight, and I wonder if the real answer ends up being five, six, or seven, because that's also a way you can get Colin Sexton, Beasley, Clarkson, and some of the younger guys some more run if you're not dedicating quite as many minutes to Conley while you presumably wait and look around the league for a trade to Washington, Philadelphia, whatever, whatever. And the jazz, by the way, they love having Conley and Clarkson around as camp counselors. Like if, mm-hmm. if that's the way it plays out and they're still here, like I, I do think that the jazz are sincere when they say that they like the influence of those guys and whatever, but yeah, at, at some point, you know, at, at some point there's going to be an opportunity with one or both of those guys and it's going to change the the reality. And even if there's not like, yeah, you just like, oh, you you want to go to Cancun with your wife mid season? Like, cool, huh. we'll say we'll say you have tendonitis like. Yeah, tendonitis. Um, yeah. Need some humidity to clear that up. Exactly. So what was the there was a weird one a few years like someone had like a facial rash or something. <laughs> I remember the rash. I just don't remember who it was. Anyway, well, that, like that'll be its own podcast. We'll do a podcast segment where we just make up fake maladies for Hardy and Justin and Danny to use um, for their for their injury reports throughout the year. That'd be really helpful to the team, I think. Something to look forward to for the listeners. Yeah. Um, so is that it? Did we work through your questions? Yeah, that was that. My- was, that was the six. My my thing, and we don't have to go long on this one because we we promised that we'd be abbreviated because we combined questions, and I don't <laughs> want to blow that. But but to me, you know, the the thing that matters the most, and again, this is part of what I'm a, what I'm writing about currently. Um, the biggest question that matters to this year's Jazz is the question of how many of these fifteen guys will will not just still be around, but will be in a position to actually play a role on whatever the next contending version of the jazz is. And I have something coming where I'm going to kind of break that down into some groups and say like, you know, if you're, 
if you're a Baji or Kessler, your chances are probably a little bit higher because the Jazz control your destiny for six or seven years at least, right? Yeah. Um, but but that's that's kind of my thing. So I, I don't know. I, I'm not asking you for a number, but maybe like where's the over-under in your mind where, you know, if the Jazz have at least X number of players on the current roster that are going to still be there when they're good again, when they're competing again, you know, that that's a good sign for jazz fans. Cause, cause I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think like, I don't know. I won't answer my own question. Take it, so, take so, it away. And then I'll yeah. in. Yeah. So do me a favor. What do you, where, what kind of level do you put when they're, when they're good again? Are we talking about making the playoffs again? Are we talking about being uh, lowercase or uppercase C contenders again? What, where are you? Yeah. I would say, line? I would say, you know, at some point in the medium term future, the jazz are going to be at least borderline contenders again. Yeah. And okay. are they going to do that because Lowry Markkinen is still on their roster? Are they going to do that because Abaji has blown up into something? Are they going to do that because Jordan Clarkson has re-upped and, has, you know, has signed a long, like that's, that's the question in my mind um, is how many of these guys and which guys is as important a question but I don't even want to broach that at minute 61 or whatever we're at. Like, um, you know, yeah. How, how many, how many of these guys do you think are rotation players on that version of the jazz? I'd probably cap it at two or three, honestly, because I just think there's going to be such an incredible amount of roster turnover in the next two to three years that I think we're not going to, and, and, to be honest, there's just there isn't a ton of talent on this on this roster, and and uh, I, I just think two or three. In fact, my mind shot back to so let me put this into the context of my year one when the Jazz had a a little better team than this because it was the first year they made the playoffs. But even that, if you go to when they actually kind of became a good team and a contending team. You've got two guys, and that's that was well. In fact, they actually have zero guys because when I started following the Jazz, they didn't even have Malone and Stockton yet. So if you yeah. go forward now, they t- took them a little long. I guess it depends on when you say when did they become good. Um, if you say they became good in the in '88, which is probably the earliest argument you could make, you could say okay, Daryl Griffith was still there, Ricky Green was still there, but he was in a backup role, and Thurl was still there but mm-hmm. nobody else from 83, 84 was. Um, so yeah, it's, it's going to be, and, and, and that, then that 83, 84 jazz team had more talent. I would argue because they had one hall of famer, if nothing else than this, than this one does. So I think we're going to see even guys, we have a pretty high opinion of there's, there's, there's a guy on Twitter. I, I go back and forth with a bit. If he listens to this, he'll probably know I'm talking about him, but who who has a pretty high opinion of Colin Sexton. I think Colin Sexton is a contract that's in the right range that he could be easily traded in the next two to three years when there's a chance to upgrade or grab an asset or do, do whatever. And I don't, I wouldn't, you know, again, if we're talking about names, I, he's not somebody I would probably put on my list, marking it a little more maybe. And then you go down the list and there's not a whole lot more until you get to those really young guys who, who there's more of a chance they'll be around. Uh, particularly the two that you've got four years on a rookie contract and who knows three or four after that. Plus match. Right? Yeah. 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 So, you yeah. Know. Well, it's funny you mentioned Sexton. Like that's, that's exactly the guy I was going to go to before I stopped myself and let you go first. <laughs> like to me, Sexton is that, that deal was, was made to be, to be like included in a big trade at some point, because if he pops and by, and by pop, I just mean like if he gets to like really solid starter level, meaning like, I don't even mean like from accounting stats perspective where two years ago, he averaged 24 on pretty decent efficiency. I mean, like, you know, even scoring 18 to 20, but being a slightly better passer and still maintaining that efficiency and to where, you know, you could now suddenly imagine him, being a, a, you know, a valuable starter suddenly, you know, a few years from now after the cap jumps, yeah, 
being being able to get a guy like that, a, a starter caliber player in the high teens, is going to be really valuable. And I think right. that there's a there's a chance that that makes him too valuable to keep at some point. If, like I say, you know, if teams can start to imagine him, I mean the the price range he's at is basically the equivalent. If if you adjust for you know the salary cap, it, he's basically on like Alec Burks's second contract. Yeah, you know, yeah. Alec Burks he, signed for like. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say he's a, he's eighteen, nineteen in his last two years. That's gonna be more or less mid level exception money. Yeah, give or yeah. take a million. You know. Um. So I don't know. That's to me. That's the most interesting question, and the question that like. Like it's gonna be weird turning on games and like wanting to watch them and wanting to root for your team, but also not really caring if they win or lose. Yeah. And so we're gonna be watching for other things for the next eighty-two. And for me, the the thing I'm gonna be watching for is like, you know, who's showing me a hint that they could be, you know, that they could be part of, um, you know, part of that next jazz core that's good. Um, and, and like I said, now I'm going to log off and go finish writing about that so people can read it at some point. <laughs> All right. Maybe I'll get around to reading that one a little faster when it comes out. I, I, won't yeah, I don't know. Way. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or we can do a, another podcast in a week and you'll be like, oh, you know what we could talk about? You, you never know. It could happen. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks for um, doing all the prep for this podcast so I didn't have to do anything except for talk. Um, and, and rant and repeat myself a lot um, when talking about windows. Um, Stick with your strengths. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. Um, yeah. So um, thanks for joining me. That's Ken Clayton over there. I'm Dan Clayton, managing editor of Salt City Hoops. Um, we'll have a whole lot more coverage in uh, the coming days as the Jazz get their season underway. And then, uh, yeah, like we said, 82 games to come. Maybe not a lot of them will be victories, but we'll have some other stuff to watch for and um, to wonder about and analyze and break down. And that's what we do here at saltcityhoops.com. So thanks for joining us. Have a good one.